This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, Tree. How's it going today? I got something special for today. Just going to give you a nutrition to go deep in your roots, which you look like you uh, desperately need. Drink up. Have a good day. See you tomorrow. Morning. We may not be a full-on tree-hugging church. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we are definitely a tree-talking-to church, huh? Well, good morning. My name is Bob, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. And I want to start off just by welcoming you. Thank you so much for bearing the rain to come on out here. Especially if this is your first time here, welcome to you. Thank you uh, for being here this morning. Um, Ron, who more often than not would be up here speaking to you, he is suffering this week with his wife in Hawaii. and Probably didn't come out right now. Suffering with his wife. Ron is having a great time in Hawaii this week with his wife. And uh, so here I am. Um, I heard Michael checking in on Valentine's Day. How many of you had a good Valentine's Day? Did you get it out there, most of you? Good. Well, I actually had a good day yesterday. It was actually a couple days before that that I struggled. I decided to go do some fine jewelry shopping, and uh, so I went to Kmart. And I go in there, and I'm standing there at the counter, and uh, I'm looking through their stuff, and the lady who's helping me, she brings out this tray of rings and, and stuff, and I'm looking at them, and... I said, you know, excuse me, I said, kind of uh, with the economy and all, and uh, things are a little tight right now, these are nice, but they're a little bit beyond my price range, do you have something a little bit less expensive that I can look at? So she kind of looks at me and nods and reaches down in the counter and pulls out this other tray of stuff, and again, bracelets and necklaces, they're all quite nice, I found a few things I liked, but when I looked at the price, it was like, wow, I said, I- I'm really sorry, but can you just, can you show me something cheap? She looks at me and she reaches under into the counter again, holds up a mirror, Happy Valentine's Day, right? So I bought some chocolates, and uh, it, was all, it was all good. Well, uh, my name is Bob, if I haven't introduced myself yet, and I too am the part of the pastoral team here at New Life. And for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at how to find and figure out how it is to live a life worth living. How many of you would like to live a life worth living, huh? Well, for those of you who raised your hands, you are in the right place because uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, actually, throughout this series. And uh, Ron started last week, and he went through the, the first chapter in a book in the New Testament, which is called Colossians. And it actually was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to that church there. And so he introduced it, went through the first chapter, and I'm going to be looking at the second chapter today and uh, starting... Uh, really with just the first 10 verses today in, in chapter 2. And so we've been trying to understand, okay, what is it that God has to say about experiencing a life worth living? And uh, it stands to reason that if God created us, then God would have some of the best insights in how to live a life in such a way so that we could get the most out of it. And not only so that we could get the most out of our life, but so that we can be the biggest blessing for those who live around us. And so that's why we, we study God's Word. That's why we study the Bible, right? 
so that as we understand it and we see what God has to say and we figure out who he is and we figure out who we are in the context of this relationship with God, then we'll get to experience a life that is worth living. Because see, ultimately, our identity, our sense of self-worth comes from the relationship, the interaction that we have with God, our connectedness with God. And so God, over and over again, as you go throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end, He tells us how He created us, how He loves us, and beyond anything else, He desires for us to live our lives in the context of relationship with Him. That's why we are created, and that's what He desires for us. In fact, so much so, that's why he sent Jesus to live amongst us. Why he sent Jesus to teach us and to love on us. Any of you, any of you ever had a secret admirer? Huh? couple giggles. Somebody who, who loved you from afar. Somebody who maybe sent you a Valentine's gift and all that was on it with little X's and O's at the bottom, right? Met the hugs and the kisses across the bottom. Maybe a pair of lips right there where the signature is supposed to be. Right, to have a, a secret admirer. How sad would it be that if you went through your life and you never knew that there was somebody out there who loved you, who admired you, who'd pretty much go to whatever length they could to have a relationship with you, was willing to do anything almost to, to connect with you. Kind of like that movie, Sleepless in Seattle. You remember that movie, A Real Chick Flick? But somehow I loved that movie. I don't know. It was just, it was a good movie. That kind of story. Well, the truth is, we all do have a secret admirer. And that secret admirer is God. Someone who would go to any measure to have a relationship with us. And the good news is, is that he didn't keep it a secret. But he revealed his love for us. He showed us what that love looked like through Jesus Christ. See, living in that love, living in that love relationship with a knowledge and understanding of who God is and who we are in God, that is what is going to make our lives a life worth living. That's where our roots need to grow. That's where our real life source is going to come from. That's what's going to produce in our life the nourishment and the fulfillment and the substance and stability that we need in life. So we haven't even gotten to the second chapter yet in Colossians, but right there, what I just told you, that's what Paul is going to lay out for us. And so for you who have trouble listening beyond five minutes, you've just got everything that we're going to study this morning. But before we get into that, as I was doing some studying for this, uh, this talk this morning... And doing some research, I came across a video, and I really enjoyed the video, and I thought that this morning it might be helpful to, to share it with you, to put in some context this book, this book of Colossians that we're going to be studying. So go ahead and give a watch. It's about five minutes. With not much daylight left, my last stop on my three-city tour of the Lycus Valley would have to be quick. It was a town called Colossae, and this one was completely unexcavated deep inside a massive mound of earth that rises above the Lycus Valley floor. 
There were a few remains of pillars and various and sundry ruins that peeked out of the ground along the road to ancient Colossae. But strangely, I enjoyed thinking that this city that lay untouched deep in the earth was the recipient of not one, but two New Testament letters, documents that would establish their place among the most influential in world history. The Apostle Paul didn't start the church in Colossae, but sent the man who did, Epaphras. When word got back to Paul, who had been put under arrest in Rome, that false teachers were stirring things up in Colossae, he decided to write the letter to the Colossians to correct their errors. The content of this false teaching is now lost, but we can piece it together based on what Paul wrote to refute it. Paul wrote against what he called a hollow and deceptive philosophy, which had found its way to Colossae because of its diverse population. Instead, Paul taught the true philosophy of Christ, in whom, he said, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There must have been some kind of higher knowledge in Colossae that was trying to downplay the central role of Jesus Christ in Christian theology. Many scholars also think that there were the early seeds of a false teaching called Gnosticism in Colossae. Now the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnostikos, which means good at knowing, and it implied a special class of elite people who had an inside track to higher and secret knowledge. Gnosticism also teaches that everything that is spirit is good, and everything that is matter is evil. Because of this, the false teachers were telling the Colossians not only to worship angels and consider them higher than Christ himself, but also to refuse certain foods and festivals as if doing so would qualify them as better Christians. One of the most significant things Colossians teaches is the radically world-changing idea that in the newly made community of Christians, God shows no favoritism. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. Even slaves and free people share equal status in Christ. He completely obliterates any notion of one group of Christians being better or closer to God than another group. In Christ, Paul says, you share the same status before God as anyone else. In the first century, this was a radical and even dangerous idea especially in an age when the emperor determined the value of an individual, and one out of every five people were slaves, and therefore thought of as disposable property. Some would say that this Christian idea of equality has done more to influence the bedrock of justice and fairness in Western civilization than anything else. It's no accident, for example, that echoes of this idea can be found in America's founding documents. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Because of Paul's teaching that in Christ there is no distinction between slave and free, it should come as no surprise that he would attract slaves as friends. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, he became friends with a runaway slave from a member of this very Colossian church. The slave's name was Onesimus, and his master's name was Philemon. While on the run, Onesimus, who had stolen from his master Philemon, landed himself in prison in either Ephesus or Rome. 
That's where he met Paul and was converted by Paul's message of the gospel. So thoroughly life-changing was this conversion that Onesimus was actually willing to return to his master Philemon back in Colossae. Paul's request for Philemon to accept Onesimus back into his household is what we now have in the New Testament, the letter to Philemon. Philemon had every right to punish Onesimus when he returned, but Paul urges him to receive him no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. But could the runaway Onesimus be trusted to willingly go all the way back to his master in Colossae? I think we can assume that he did. After all, if he had continued to run, how would we have ever known about the letter? Colossae never completely recovered from the great earthquake in 60 AD, and its ruins still lie untouched deep inside this mound of earth. But more powerful than the earthquake that destroyed the town, the two short letters written to the small Colossian church have provided some of the most foundational ideas on which our entire civilization is based. As important today as they were in the first century, the words of an apostle of Jesus Christ to the people of this small town have gone on to plant seeds of freedom and equality in the hearts of people around the world. But the work is not yet complete, and as Jesus said, the fields are ripe for the harvest. You enjoy that? Is that helpful putting into some of the context what we'll be talking about as we talk about this letter that was written to this church? Well, let me invite you or encourage you to take out your New Life notes. If you haven't done that yet, they're in your program. That way you can follow along with some of the scriptures that we'll be going, uh, we'll be sharing with, and there's some fill-in-the-blanks that you can take some notes on if you would like to do that. So let's begin by looking at the second chapter of Colossians. Let's start with the first couple of verses. Paul is writing, and he says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church in Laodicea. Now, where Paul says agonize there, that's, a, that's a, actually a sporting term, an athletic term that Paul is using, which he does a lot through his writing. And agonizing, it means like when you're striving to really win or to succeed or if you're rooting for a team. That's kind of his, his context that he's saying, I'm, I'm your champion here as I'm rooting for you. So he says, I, have much, I, have, um, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church in Laodicea, which is a, another city. And he says, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's secret plan. How many of you like secrets? Secrets can be kind of fun, you know, if they're not harmful. Well, he says, I want you to understand God's secret plan. What is God's secret plan? Look how he ends the sentence. He says, which is Christ himself. God's secret plan is is Christ himself. Remember I talked to you about that secret admirer? There it is, Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he goes on and he says, In him, in Christ, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Contained within Christ is all the wisdom and all the knowledge that we will ever need to know. But what is that treasure of knowledge contained in Christ? What is that treasure of of knowledge that he wants us to know? It's a secret, but he unfolds in Christ. Take a look here. The treasure of God's knowledge is this. God so loved the world 
For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And the knowledge is that God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And that treasure of knowledge contains this from 2 Corinthians. God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. And from verse 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. You see, that is the treasure and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. That encapsulates this special treasure that God wants us to know. You see, it says in the Bible that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of everything that we need to know to have a life that is worth living, it all begins with the fear or the awe of God. A life worth living all begins when we recognize the full wonder and beauty of God. You know, I didn't put that down there as one of your notes, but that would have been a good note. Don't miss this point. A life worth living, it all begins when we begin to realize and recognize the beauty and the wonder of God. And that, my friends, only comes about in the context of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's God's secret plan. That is God's secret plan. That's his hidden treasure, a treasure that he wants us to find, a treasure that he wants us to tap into. So why is Paul writing about this secret plan of God, this treasure of knowledge? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He says, I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. He says, hey, it's great that you're living in this relationship with God. It's great that your faith is strong. But he says, be careful. He puts out this warning. He says, be careful because it's possible to be deceived, to get distracted from all the important from this all-important relationship that we have with Christ. It's easy to get distracted from this relationship and all that it entails in our life. See, many of us, we, we start out on a good footing. We start out strong. We have a good foundation. We believe that God loves us and that God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. But then... Oftentimes, in our journey, something happens. We begin to forget, or we just ignore what we know is right. We start to make choices that instead of drawing us closer to God and building on that relationship with God, we allow things to begin to pull us away, to get us off track. Our focus, it, it kind of begins to blur 
a little bit. A number of years ago, uh, when I was a youth pastor, we had gone on a camping trip. And uh, there was this trail that the kids could take. It was basically one of those loops. You know, you start in one place and you go around and you come back and you end up where you started out. So we told the kids, hey, you can go on out there on your own. Just, you know, make the loop and we'll see you when you get done. Well, so we all made the loop and we all got back, all except two of us who were missing. And about a half an hour later, they were still missing. And about an hour later, I started to get worried. Not about the kids, about my job. And... uh, Oh, about an hour and a half or later or so, they finally come walking on in. Go, what happened? Where were you guys? And they said, well, we were, we were going along the path, and then we got off the path. We decided we'd take a shortcut. We decided we'd figure out our own way to do it, and we got lost up in the hills. And you know, oftentimes, that's what happens to us. We start off on this path, and we're going in the right direction. It's going to bring us to that desired destination, a life worth living. But then we get distracted, or we get off the path. We try to take a shortcut or we decide to go our own way. Here's God's warning from Proverbs. It says, some people think they're doing right, that they're on the right path. But in the end, but in the end it leads to destruction. It leads to getting lost. So here Paul is going to start to tell us as we continue in this verse, he's going to begin to instruct us towards a mindset that will protect this relationship, that will protect this path that we're on. And he's going to warn us of ways of thinking that will lead to unhealthy or destructive patterns and behaviors in our lives that will negatively impact this relationship we have with God and will also negatively impact our relationship with others. So he says this, verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in what? Obedience to him. Obedience, that's not a real popular word. Unless it's in the context of our kids listening to us, then it's a great word. But obedience, we kind of don't like that. We like to think of ourselves as these independent people. But you see, this idea of obedience to God, it's the very bedrock, the foundation of this relationship with God and about living a life that's worth living. But what does it look like? What does obedience to God look like? What does it mean to live our lives obeying God? Well, actually, Jesus made it pretty easy for us. He summed it all up in these three verses in Matthew. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. The entire law and all the demands are based on these two commands. Do you hear that? The totality of everything that God has to say to us, for us to live a life in obedience to God so that we will live a life to its fullest, a life that's worth living, is contained in these two verses. Three verses. The rest of the Bible is to help us understand who God is. 
It's, it's to help us know what God is like. It teaches us how to have a relationship with Him and how that relationship with God should affect every other relationship we have and every sphere of our life and every area of our life. But obedience to God is walking these simple three verses out. I say simple, but how do we do that? How do we live a life in obedience where we're loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind? How do we treat others like we want to be treated and love others as ourselves? Well, Paul gives us that answer in verse 7. He says, let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and your life will overflow with thankfulness for all that he has done. Doesn't that sound like a life worth living? Overflowing with thankfulness. See, in our lives, we need to be anchored. Our roots need to grow down deep into this love relationship with God through Christ. See, in order for roots in a tree to do their job well, they must grow in the right kind of soil, right? If they grow in a soil that is too rocky, oftentimes those roots can't supply sufficient nutrients for the tree to continue to thrive and produce fruit. And when the sun comes out and the temperatures begin to rise, the plant, it withers and it dies. Well, similarly, with us, when the roots of our souls are placed in anything other than this relationship with Christ, when the pressures of life come, and when the demands and the disappointments of life comes, and they will come, we begin to wither. And sometimes we even begin to die inwardly. Because our roots aren't tapped into, they're not secure in this relationship with Christ. In fact, in one of the better known illustrations that Jesus gave, emphasizes this point. And it's from Matthew 13, and I didn't include it in your notes, but I'd like you to listen to it. Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds And as he scattered those seeds across the field, some of the seeds, they fell on the footpath. And the birds came and they ate those seeds. Other seeds fell on the shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted up very quickly because of the soil being shallow. But the plants soon withered under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and they choked out the tender plant. Still other seeds fell on the fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Jesus says, anyone who has an ear to hear should listen and understand. Well, his disciples were there and a little while later they said, Jesus, well, we have ears, but we don't quite understand. Can you help us out here? And so Jesus goes on and he explains the parable about the farmer. He says, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom of God and don't embrace it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their heart. 
It says, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and they immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last very long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing in God. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life or for the lure of wealth. And so in their life, no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on the good soil represents those who truly hear and understands God's word and produces a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. See that good soil? The good soil and the produce of that good soil, that's what makes a life that is worth living. That's what provides for us a life that is full and abundant. And it's lived out in relationship with God and it's lived out in a healthy, satisfying manner with other people. Here's the key understanding from Proverbs. It said, wickedness never brings stability. Only the godly have deep roots. So back to verse 8, Paul is going to continue to warn us. He warns us again. He says this. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. He says, don't let anyone, and friends, that includes yourself. He says, don't let anyone mess up what you have begun. Don't let anyone get you off the path that you have started. Whether you're early in your journey just trying to discover and find out who God is, or whether you've been on that path and in journey with God and you're just trying to go deeper and better understand who he is and how that impacts your life. He says, don't let anyone get you off that path. Here's the key principle. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down deep into God's love and they will keep you strong. A life worth living where God's love is in your heart. And he keeps you strong. And then in verse 9, Paul says this. For in Christ, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Think about that for a moment. It says, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Everything there is to know about God can be seen in Jesus Christ. Everything there is to experience about God can be experienced in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's an amazing sentence. But it's the power, the truth, the life that can transform our lives into lives worth living. And Paul wraps up in this part in verse 10. He says, So you also are complete through your union 
with Christ. You and I are complete through our union with Christ. Here's our key truth for this morning. You are complete through your union, through your relationship with Christ. How many of you saw the movie Jerry Maguire? Remember the line? You complete me. Right? You complete me. Remember they're going at each other all mushy? That's the longing of the human soul is to be complete. To be loved. Completely loved. You see, we all return, we desire to return to that perfect union. That sweet fellowship, that, that intimate friendship we had with God from the beginning. And that, my friend, is alone what can complete us. That alone is what can fill that hunger within our heart, that emptiness and that longing. We desire to be complete. And Paul tells us, you are complete through your union, through your connectedness, through your relationship with Christ. The Bible tells us that it's only possible, though, to get to that place through Christ. And because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Listen to Ephesians 3.19. Back, please. It says, May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Isn't that what we want? To be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And here's the message that Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, when we were utterly helpless, while we were still a far long way away from God, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us. He died for you. He died for me. That is the secret to a life worth living. And in a moment, together, we get to celebrate that sacrifice. We get to remember and celebrate what Christ accomplished on that cross through communion. And here's what I want to offer you this morning. In taking communion, I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life to Christ, to make your heart His home, to invite Him to come into your life and to commit your life to living a life in a relationship with Him that will be obedient to Him, loving Him with all of your heart and all of your soul, and all of your mind. Loving those around you as you want to be loved. Tapping into the strength and the support and the life of His Holy Spirit that will give you the ability to do that. Whether you're making that commitment for the very first time this morning, I invite you to do that. To surrender your life and ask God to come in and fill that that hole in your heart. To connect you with Him. To forgive you and to make you whole. Or maybe you're at a place this morning where you've made that commitment long ago. But somehow, like the kids in my youth group, they got off the path. And maybe you've been wandering out there and you know you're lost. You know the path is still there somewhere. Today is the day to get back onto that path. Receive God's forgiveness. Receive his embrace and let him complete you. Or maybe you're just full on trucking with God. And this is just your morning to reaffirm that relationship. 
to thank him for what he has accomplished and what he's doing in you and just recommit your life and every day to living for him. I invite you to do that. When the, when the ushers come, they'll pass some trays. It'll be a piece of bread. This represents the body of Christ, the body that encompassed and, and contained all the fullness of God that came to earth that says was broken and given so that we could be whole and complete. The cup, it contains the juice, which represents his blood, which says it was poured out for our forgiveness, his very life given, so that we could be back in relationship with him through his forgiveness. If you're at a place this morning and you prefer not to take communion for whatever reason, that's fine. This is a time between you and God. Please don't do it for me or anyone sitting around you. But if you'd like to this morning, commit your life to Christ. Take that cup and take that bread. Say a prayer where you're surrendering yourself and when you're ready, partake of them. I want you to hear this closing promise for all of us who share in Christ. It's from Jeremiah. It says, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Would you pray with me, please? Father, God, we desire for our lives to produce fruit. God, we want our lives to be lives that are worth living. And so this morning, Lord, we surrender. We surrender to you and to your promises. We desire to come into that relationship that you want with us. Lord, would you forgive us of our sins, our mistakes, our blunders, our wanders? And God, would you bring us back onto the path with you? God, would you fill our heart and our soul and our mind? May we be consumed with you this morning. God, may we love others as you have loved us. Thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.